You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. topic today is the governor's office in New Orleans, which is always an interesting topic. It's uh, more interesting than usual this year because this year is going to be an election year. And we know for sure that we're going to get a new governor because the uh, the president governor is, uh, is term limited. Uh, not only that, but some of the people who are running for his office have statewide office. And if, then, if any of them is elected, we're going to, you know, we'll be filling their position too. Talking about this and leading us through this, is uh, Robert Mann. Uh, well, talk about a guy with credentials, all right? Uh, Robert Mann uh, holds the Manship Chair of Journalism at the Manship School of Mass Communications at LSU. Uh, prior to the Manship School, he served as the Communications Director uh, for, for Governor Kathleen Blanco. He joined the governor's staff in 2004 after serving 17 years state director of press uh, to U.S. Senator John Brough. Uh, he also served on the staff of, uh, of Jay Bennett Johnson. So he served on the Senate staff of Jay Bennett Johnson, John Brough, and the gubernatorial staff of, uh, of Kathleen uh, Blanco. He also early in his career served as a, a journalist for the Shreveport Journal and the Monroe News Store. And for several years, uh, he had a column for the Times Picayune. He's also freelance and contributed to various national publications. So that's a bunch of stuff. And so um, uh, I think we got the right guy to talk about it. But I'm going to start off by just talking about, and, and, and I want to talk about this year's gubernatorial election. But first of all, about the governor's office historically in Louisiana. Uh, we know it's been a colorful office, but if you can kind of just look, think about it compared with other governor's offices, is it? Is it more powerful? Is it less relevant? Is it more foolish? I mean, what, what can you say about the governor's office over time in Louisiana? Well, I think that it's it's it is a more, more powerful office than in many states, and I think that that probably goes back to Huey Long, when Long was governor in the uh, late twenties and early thirties, and even when he was U.S. senator and had a puppet governor in uh, in O.K. Allen, uh, this was a an, an office that. This was a time when state government was really consolidating um, around the governor. Local control was consolidating within the governor. Long was moving more and more uh, power into the governor's office. Um, for those who've, who've read about Huey Long or read about state government during those days, some of the you know one of the one of the reasons that Long was so controversial and so hated, and maybe even led to his assassination or certainly plots to assassinate him before Carl Weiss got to him, was that in 1933, 34, and 35, he was taking over local governments, investing the power um, to appoint local, to you know, throw out all the local officials and say, you know, for one example, in I think 1935, was to throw out every municipal official in the city of Alexandria and gave the governor the right to appoint all of their all of their replacements until the next election. And he was doing that across the board. A lot of that 
a lot of those laws got repealed when Dick Lash and others got into office pretty quickly. But there was a, there was a lot of power that, the, that, that, that Long consolidated in the governor's office uh, when he was governor, when O.K. Allen were governor, that remained in the governor's office. So some of it is statutorial, uh, a vestige of those times. I and mean, we're, you know, we're now in a different constitution, so uh, we're not operating under the same rules that we were operating when, when Huey was governor. But we are operating, I think, in, to, to a great degree under the same sort of um, attitude about the governor and about state government that we were when, when in, in, the, in the immediate post-Long era. And that is that, that state government gets to decide uh, uh, most of what we do. That, that the, the, the municipalities have a lot less power than they do, for example, in a state like Texas, where um, local ordinances, um, you, know, you can go, go from one town to the other, one city from the other, and you're living almost under a different legal structure. That's not the case in Louisiana because power is so uh, firmly consolidated within state government and uh, the authority, or at least the, the power to control that, those, make those rules has been for a long, long time, maybe, in, maybe not so much now that, the, that there really is a, a, a division of power in state government between the legislature and the governor, but until John Bell Edwards, the governor really kind of ruled as, a, as something of a, a demigod or a minor monarch. Well, if you look at New Orleans, there was times when there was a lot of conflict between the uh, city hall and the state capitol. But even the time there was a war between New Orleans and the state government, uh, if you know where Gallia Hall is on, on St. Charles, and I think they wanted to, the state wanted to subpoena some records and they were located in the building across the street and they had state police on one side and New Orleans police on the other side. But uh, I think the governor's office got a lot involved with, with the machine politics in New Orleans. Though in 1954, though, the city passed and the state approved the Home Rule Charter, which it looks like tried to rectify that, that problem. This, this, I guess, when the so-called reformers were in charge to give the city the kind of control it should have and take it away from the state. Yeah, and so a lot of, a lot of these local governments have taken more and more uh, power or have acquired more and more control over their um, over their business, uh, but they're still, you know, the state government still have has a has a has a, a lot of authority. Um, you know, a lot of it is is through taxing now, uh, through revenue sharing, uh, not just by setting the rules, but by by um, by setting the the, the taxes. Um, and I think it's also it's just become um, uh, traditional, uh, you know, so that there was no, um, there was no law that said that the governor got to choose uh, the House Speaker and the Senate President. There was no law that said the governor got to decide who uh, the committee chairs were. Um, but until John Bell Edwards, uh, really until the, the, the Republicans in the legislature got a, got a majority to effectively declare their independence from the governor, um, and, you know, it, Edwards was the end of that sort of tradition when the legislature really deferred to the governor and said, are you get to name our leadership? That's crazy. There was nothing in law that allowed them to do that. It was just tradition that 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 had existed for for generations. And well, well, um, well, of course, when the governor had absolute power, uh, yeah. Yeah, politically, it was wise to suck up to the governor. Yeah, right. When the governor could sustain a veto. Yeah. When the governor could sustain a light on veto. Um, he, he or she could get away with a lot more. Now, now that the Republicans have almost 
you know, the, the, numerically they may not have the numbers, but but uh, functionally they do have on on some votes at least the ability to override a governor's veto, um, the governor's power to um, you know to enforce his to force his will on the legislature is greatly diminished. Um, looking back at state history, I'm not going to ask you unless you want to. to well, I will, yeah. To, uh, to name a recent governor, but who are some of the governors just historically that you think stand out as, as really being effective governors? Well, you know, certainly Huey Long, uh, but even before him, I think, um, you know, I've, I've been reading a lot about John Parker, who was, uh, who became governor in 1920, and uh, who was, a, you know, a pretty strong governor and who presided over the, the rewriting of the state constitution, um, who uh, was, Really responsible for um, the, the sort of the modern LSU, or at least the foundation upon which Huey Long built the modern LSU. He believed very strongly in, in, in education, higher education, and created the um, the foundation to create a really strong state university that did not exist before Parker came along. Uh, after him, you know, there was we we were in a, a situation where there was a, you know. A, there was a, a lot of turmoil um, after Huey Long. Um, and so the, the governors weren't, um, you know, we had governors who went to prison and, 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 and Dick Lesh and who resigned and went to prison. Um, the governors weren't, weren't uh, didn't have the ability to do quite as much because there was just so much turmoil in the state government in those days. I think of John McKithen and Edwin Edwards. There was you know, those, those two governors, two, two governors in a row who I think were, were really powerful, who knew, um, how to um, how to use power? Um, who you know, one from South Louisiana, one from North Louisiana, but knew, but 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 created a, a sort of a different coalition. I mean, Edwin Edwards and and McKithen kind of started this, bringing African Americans into the power structure, tapping into that strength. Uh, McKithen sort of started it, and uh, and Edwards really perfected it. And I think when when Edwards uh, built that uh, sort of that that North-South coalition, that Black-White coalition, it gave him, you know, so much power and authority. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why he served four terms. I, I wouldn't, I, I think we would could all agree that all of his terms weren't as, as successful as the first two. Um, but um, during it those- was more, It was more money during the first two. He had a lot of money. He had a lot of money. You're right. He had a lot of money, but he had a lot of money because he, he, um, he passed. He, he he provided over over. He presided over legislation changing the way that we we taxed um, uh, the extraction of oil and gas to give the state a lot of money. So we did have that money, um, but a lot of it was because of the changes in law that Edwards made. So I would say I would say certainly Edward Edwards um, and and uh, and John McKithen, um, and, and and you know in more recent times maybe influential and and consequential. In a negative way, but I would say Bobby Jindal because he's he changed uh, uh, the way we uh, sort of the way that government interacted with education in, in very significant, I think, harmful ways. But he he made some very consequential uh, changes in the in in, in that area. You say that because most of the comments, actually, all the comments I've heard about Jindal since he's been governor have been very very critical. So it's well, and I'm not being I'm not I'm not flattering him at all by saying he he. he he nearly destroyed higher education in the state and really changed the nature in a, in a very negative way for 
elementary and secondary education, but I think the changes that he made were consequential. I think they were harmful, but they were they were really consequential. You know, the thing that's always interested me about McKithlin is that uh, he was in the runoff against uh, Chef Morrison, who's the mayor of New Orleans. And so it became a classic North versus South, uh, North versus the mayor of New Orleans. And for the rest of the state, being a mayor of New Orleans is like being the devil, right? And so they were, all, uh, they were always presented like that. And McKithlin in that runoff did sort of like a, a race baiting campaign and an anti-New Orleans campaign. But yet when he became governor, <laughs> He became one of the greatest governors New Orleans ever had in the, in the things that he did. And he certainly did some great things on the racial side, especially the, uh, the march to Bugalusa when he went on TV and told the states, you know, let those people march. They have a right to be marching, you know, and, we, and we're going to protect them. So he became really a very important governor. Oh, yeah, he really did. And I think, you know, I think that Edwin uh, and, and, and McKithen, and I, I sort of alluded to this before, I think they, they, they tried to... Um, well, I, I think they did more than try. I think they accomplished um, a sort of an, a, a north-south coalition. Until that time, it, it was impossible to, um, you know, at least since the days of Huey Long, it, it was impossible to think of, a, of, of South Louisiana, especially New Orleans, uh, electing a governor because the, the northern part of the state just held all the power. Um, and and the, and the population, in some ways, uh, outside of New Orleans, the rest of the states, if you consider everything outside of New Orleans, North Louisiana, although we, we don't, but uh, politically- well, well, above I-10. Uh, yeah, yeah, above I-10. But there was there was a, this, this, and there still is, a, a, a tremendous amount of resentment outside of New Orleans toward New Orleans. So it was really easy to get the, um, the rest of the state sort of ganged up against whoever the New Orleans, New Orleans candidate for governor or senator or whatever it might be. Um, but, um, and, and, you know, Edwin sort of, and it was, and really sort of not just New Orleans, but South Louisiana versus North Louisiana. I mean, you know, how many governors came from North Louisiana? Uh, it was a pipeline for governors. Uh, well, but to, Edwin, to this day, at, at least in modern times, uh, maybe in pre-Civil War times, uh, but, but there really hasn't been a governor from New Orleans. Now, Richard Lesh was from I think he was kind of Huey Long just put him there. I mean, he really wasn't a reflection of the of, of the voter sentiment, but really New Orleanians have not fared well for any governor. Yeah, and, uh, I think you could argue that Parker was a, you know, Parker was clearly a New Orleans New Orleanian when he became right. Parker, okay. Um, but he yeah, still is. still is. He's buried in Metairie Cemetery. It's a very um, <laughs> yeah, uh, a very prominent place. Um, and then of course, Huey begot. Earl, Earl K, his brother, uh, and his brother had certainly capitalized on Huey Long's populism and big spending, and uh, uh, didn't quite have the uh, the savvy of uh, of Huey Long. Yeah, and you know, here's the other thing that I think you have to consider when you're think when you're comparing governors, their influence, their power, their longevity, whatever, is. Um, uh, whether they were the whether they were governor when they, when governors were limited to one term or whether they were governor when they were limited to two terms. I mean, you know, you you look at people like Earl Long, uh, Bob Kennan, Jimmy Davis, um, even Huey Long. Um, all of them could only serve one term, so they they never had more than four years to get anything done. Then along comes uh, McKithen and Edwards both serving consecutive terms, you can do a lot more if you've got eight years. 
Well, that was a real tribute to McKithen's popularity that he was able, it was under his term that the constitution was amended to allow governors to serve two terms. That's right. That's right. And it was based on McKithen's popularity. And you know what else was on that very same ballot? Approving a Superdome in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the two things on the same ballot, it was McKithen. Yeah, you know, who got it passed, who got people in the North to vote for it. So that was, that was a very important vote. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you, you've, you've, you've mentioned it several times, but McKithen's um, contribution to the, to the New Orleans area was that Superdome. It wasn't always all that, always all that popular outside the rest of the state. And I'll, I'll say, you know, Kathleen Blanco, if you're, you're talking about the, uh, the importance of a governor to a city, I think Kathleen Blanco doesn't get her due uh, for the decision in the immediate aftermath of Katrina to commit to rebuilding the Superdome when there were a lot of people outside uh, the, the state and a lot of people outside New Orleans who thought that was a crazy idea to rebuild to rebuild that building and to use that FEMA money to, to do it. But it was, the, it was the right decision and she never wavered in her determination to get that done. Well, I know you work for us, you have a better perspective, but to me, she seemed like a very good woman who had all the right intentions, but who just got beat up by Katrina. Yeah, until Katrina, um, she was having a pretty successful administration, um, had really uh, focused her, um, her energies on education, um, early childhood education, uh, and, and economic development. It was scoring a lot of really good successes uh, in, in those two areas, and it just all sort of got wiped off the, the plate when Katrina happened. Yeah. Um, how would you evaluate John Bell Edwards? Well, I would say that Edwards has been has obviously been amazingly successful in a uh, operating as a Democratic governor in a in a very Republican state state that voted sixty percent two times for 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 Donald Trump. This is not a this is not a Democratic state by any stretch of the imagination anymore. And yet Edwards was able to win two consecutive elections for governor when, um, you know, I think that both times he was underestimated and I was one of those people that underestimated him the first time who didn't think that he could, could do it. So just getting elected uh, in this environment in this state is, is an amazing accomplishment that uh, probably alone secures his, uh, his place in the pantheon of, of significant governors. But I think that, um, you know, especially in the second term, um, he has distinguished himself by, you know, per, by almost perfecting the, the management of, of natural disasters and public health disasters. I mean, that has been really pretty much all that he's dealt with uh, since he entered his second terms, dealing with either COVID or, uh, or, or hurricane uh, recovery. And he's done a remarkable job. I think he's, he's ex exercised incredible leadership. I haven't heard much, if any, complaints about his uh, his steady leadership and disaster uh, recovery, uh, and he, I think he navigated. Um, I think he navigated COVID pretty well. I mean, he took some he took some heat from the from the from the legislature, but he, um, you know, I mean, I'm not d debating the public health aspects of this, more the politics of it, but I think he he began to ease off and back off the uh, you know really strong um, uh, restrictions on on our your, yours and mine our activities. Uh, in a way that, that didn't enrage uh, the public, um, for example, like the, the governor of Nevada did, who just lost re-election um, 
a couple of months ago because of largely because of the way he, he, he handled COVID. Um, so I think Edwards has done a, a really remarkable job in managing these crises. Um, the second term is always a, a difficult term because I think that's when your administration begins to sort of run out of gas, when people have been there a long time, um, start to maybe get into some trouble. Uh, he has had a couple of, of a, few, a few scandals, none of them attached to him personally, but you know the state police is in turmoil under his watch. The uh, Department of Juvenile Justice is in some turmoil under his watch. And the, the Department of uh, Children and Family Services is in chaos under his watch. It's not his fault that that agency is woefully underfunded. It's been that way for a long, long time. Um, but you know these these problems did come to a, a head in his administration, and uh, you know he he for all his success th th those will be uh, those will be stains on his on his record. I thought during the uh, the peak of the COVID crisis, when every week there'd be a press conference where he'd be talking about what's happening, what the situation is, and then of course people were waiting for the decision. How much longer do we have to mask? How, how much longer do we have to be closed? And he had to make some tough decisions. But I thought he was masterful when he did those. I mean, he's really smart. And, yep. and he has a good background in public health. So he really knew what he was talking about. I mean, he's a guy that just to me omitted trust. I mean, you, you really kind of believe this guy. Yeah, you do. And, and you know, I think that was his, his military background. He was, he, you know, he's comfortable being in charge. I think he's, I think, those kind of situations, those crises are sort of tailor-made for someone with a military, um, with that kind of military training when he's, you know, he's dealing with the National Guard, he's dealing with um, people in uniform a lot of the time. And so he was, I think he's, he was more comfortable in that environment than maybe your average civilian um, might be. Um, he, he also, I think, hired amazing, uh, some really, really good staff people. He had really good leadership at the Department of Health and Hospitals during that time. And he still does. And people like Joe Cantor and others who, um, you know, really exuded a calm and, um, and seriousness. And we're, you know, we're, we're, I don't think we're ever really um, accused of, of playing politics with the issue, like perhaps, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis has been in Florida. You know, when he was first elected, uh, his strategy was obvious. I mean, he was the only Democrat running against the field of uh, Republicans. So that kind of gave him a ticket into a runoff, you know, being the only Democrat. Uh, the trick was winning the runoff. And he got into the runoff really against the, the only Republican he could really beat. Uh, and that was David Vitter. And with Vitter, it was the, uh, his uh, sexual issues that really got him in trouble, which undermined him. So that's ultimately what made him governor being able to beat David Vitter on that. But it makes me think about future races. Do you see, unless you have this unlikable scenario in future races, do you see a Democrat being elected governor anytime soon? Uh, no, I don't. I mean, I, I but I'm hes I hesitate to say never because I was so wrong about Edwards and his ability to do it. I mean, I do think that, um, I, I do see a scenario where, I don't know who the Democrat might be, but I do see a scenario where if a Democrat and I think it would probably have to be a white Democrat. Um, there's, not many of, there's not many of those. There's not many of them. That's why I'm having such a hard time imagining the scenario. But I do think that whoever gets in a run is, let's say, whoever should might get into a runoff with Jeff Landry in the governor's race later this year. Whoever, whoever gets in a runoff with him, as long as that person is to the left of him, even marginally, I think that person has an advantage because Landry um, 
is disliked by a, a pretty significant swath of his own party. And, um, and I think the Democrats would all coalesce around the anti-Landry candidate. So if that was a moderate, if that happened to be a, a moderate Democrat that you and I cannot name or imagine, <laughs> that person might have a chance. But I do think whoever gets in the, if, 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 if it is a runoff between Landry and someone else, I think that the, whoever runs against him will sort of become the functional Democrat in that race because the Democrats will, will, will not be able to tolerate Landry and they will vote for anybody but Jeff Landry. But, but the real factor in this race is uh, Senator John Kennedy. I mean, people like Billy Nungesser have said, who's the lieutenant governor? And he says, I'm not going to run if, uh, if Kennedy does. And so um, wouldn't Kennedy be hard to beat? Yeah, I think Kennedy could be hard to beat um, because um, he's probably a better politician than Landry. Uh, yeah. He's got a bigger base than Landry does. And I think, I, I'm not sure about this. I haven't seen any polling on this, but just anecdotally talking to you know my Democratic friends that as much as they just do not like, do not like Kennedy, as much as they dislike Kennedy, they dislike and distrust uh, Landry more. So I think you might, I think Stephanie Grace had a good column a few weeks ago about how people might hold their nose and vote for Kennedy. And you might even see bumper stickers that say vote for the, for the hick, it's important. <laughs> um, and, and so, because I think that, that, that you're gonna see a anybody but Landry movement uh, start if it hasn't already started. And I think, so it, 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 what will be interesting to me is if it, if it comes down to uh, Landry and Kennedy and you know another two or three other Republicans, is there enough room in that, in that section of the republic of that of the electorate that republican section of the electorate for um is it possible that a democrat could slide into a runoff with with either landry or kennedy or would it be a landry kennedy uh election landry kennedy runoff and if it is a landry kennedy runoff does kennedy run to the to the left or the right of landry i think the you know the the the, the votes would be on to the marginally to the left um, of, 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 of Landry. It would be really interesting to see John Kennedy shapeshift a little bit again, which he's very capable of doing and has done a number of times. I don't think he would have any compunction about doing it again. But again, neither of us know who the Democrat can be. Um, well, you know, the, 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 the person that is emerging as someone that I think a lot of senior Democrats want to get behind is the, um, is, the, is John Bill Edwards, Secretary of the Department of uh, Transportation, uh, Sean Wilson, who's an African-American um, and from the Lafayette area, who's really well-respected. I, I worked with Sean when, when he and I were in the governor's office under Kathleen Blanco. He's extremely capable, uh, super smart uh, with a PhD, um, great politician. You know, I think he could, he would be a, he would be a fantastic governor. Um, my question is, can, a, can an African-American Democrat win a statewide race in a state? And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not convinced that that, that that would be the case, but, but he's, the, he's the person that, that uh, you sort of naming, coming up with names of Democrats. That's the, that's the person whose name comes up the most in, in the circles that I'm running in. Well, the political reality of politics, not just in Louisiana, but really a lot of places across the nation is that the black candidates are being elected mayors and the white candidates are being elected governors. Yeah, yeah or they're being elected Republican. They're being, re they're re black Republicans being elected, you know, like a Tim, like a Tim Scott yeah. in South Carolina. Um, that, you know, that, that it's, it's kind of a, um, 
it's, 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 it's easier for an African-American in the South to get elected as a Republican than as a Democrat. Okay. The, that person exists, the Republican? In, the, in, the, in Louisiana? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I don't know. I, I don't know of anybody who fits that, that, that bill okay. in Louisiana. Okay. The, um, the legislature, um, and John Bill Edwards in his first couple of years as governor, he spent that pretty much fighting the legislature all the time. And there was a lot of fixing to be done. You really can't uh, blame them. But how do you assess legislative politics? Do you think it's uh, a functional body? Do you think that not, they have more freedom, that they're doing better, or, or do they really need the discipline of the governor? Well, I think you're good. I think, so, that's, so I think that, you know, you just had stalemate, uh, a lot of stalemate the last few years because you've got a head of a Democratic governor in the, in the and the majority in both houses were sort of really committed to stopping pretty much everything that that he wanted to do, or um, they they wanted to they wanted to make the decisions, and they were able to do that in a lot of cases. Uh, what I think is going to be interesting to see is do the is, is I think I think it's probably likely that the Democrats pick up seats in both houses in this uh, in these next elections. I mean, Republicans pick up pick up seats in both in both houses in this election. You've got a more Republican legislature, and if you have a, um, a, a Republican governor, you might have a bigger major, bigger Republican majority in the legislature, but a less powerful Republican legislature because it will be the again it'll it'll sort of revert back to the governor being the most powerful um, uh, public official in the state because as long as they're both of the same party, I think the governor is going to, to be the the eight hundred pound gorilla in that room. And they're going to defer to whoever that is, and he's going to be able to pick the the House leadership. He's going to be able to choose the Senate president, and you're going to. Going to I think we're going to be right back where we were before John Bell Edwards, where the governor is really ruling like a monarch, even though uh, these these Republicans will have um, a veto-proof um, a majority in both houses. They won't be able to use it because it'll be a, 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 a and they won't want to use it because it'll be a a governor of their party. We're talking to Robert Mann, who's been very active in politics, working for candidates, working for Senate candidates, working for Governor Kathleen Blanco, and he holds the Manship Chair in Journalism at the Manship School of Mass Communication uh, at LSU. Let me just ask you a, a mechanical question. During the, uh, the midterm elections this past year, and elections before that, we've seen some states just be very sloppy in the way that they conducted elections. I've always said that Louisiana, for whatever false it has, we're very good at holding elections. I mean, we're very good at the mechanics of elections. Would you agree with that? Or? Yeah, I think we. You know, I think we've done a pretty good job. We 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 hold a lot of. We do it a lot. <laughs> we we uh, do yeah. it in a lot of states. <laughs> we get we get more practice. But I think yeah, I think you're right. That is true. We do. Uh, uh, we do have a lot of elections. Your position at the Manship um, is uh, is journalism. What is your view of? journalism in the state in terms of the coverage of, of politics and issues? Well, it's hurting, you know, it's hurting. Um, and I did, I published a chapter in a book with LSU Press uh, last year in which I talked about the, the state of the, the news media, uh, the political news media in the state. And I compared newspaper, mainly newspaper coverage of um, state political campaigns from, and I, I used a, a period of time between 1983 and 2019 
19, and I did so because it was it was sort of the the, the early '80s was sort of the you know the um, the heyday of Louisiana the Louisiana newspapers I think and um, or at least in the modern era I was on I was covering that race for the Shreveport Journal uh, following Edwin Edwards and Dave Treen around and I saw firsthand how many um, media organizations statewide and out of state were covering that race just how much attention uh, was put on that race and how well informed I think people on, on television and in newspapers were about the issues in that race. I mean, every, every, almost every major market had a TV station or two with a reporter or two assigned to that race. There were even um, small newspapers like the Opelousas Daily World that had um, a reporter assigned uh, full-time to covering uh, that race. Um, there was there a little small paper like mine, the Shreveport Journal, which had a circulation of about I don't know, 30,000 at the time, a daily afternoon paper, had two reporters covered, covering the race full time. Um, and then we, I, in, in my research, I fast forwarded to 2019 and just looked at the, 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 um, uh, the number of reporters, the number of news stories um, assigned to cover the governor's race of 2019. And it was just a completely different environment. I mean, these local newspapers have either gone out of business, circulation is way down, they don't have the resources to cover the race. There were only um, four or five major reporters covering the governor's race in 2019, uh, heavy, heavy emphasis on wire service uh, 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 reporting, fewer stories in general uh, about the race. And, you know, the, and there were almost no TV stations uh, who were covering the race on a consistent basis. So the average person, the average consumer of news, the average voter in 2019 was far uh, less informed about the candidates and where they stood on the issues than the average person would have been in, in the early 80s or the mid 80s or even the early 90s. And we just lost a lot of newspapers and the newspapers that are, that, are, that are still around have just lost so much revenue, they can't cover the races like they used to. And I think we're all, we're all worse off for it. You know, I saw an article about um, the scandal with Congressman Santos in New York with all the lies that have been covered that, uh, that he made as a candidate. And the question, I think ultimately it was the New York Times that brought national attention to it. But it was a while. I mean, by the time they got into it, he'd already been elected and was, you know, packing from Washington. And the article pointed out that the newspaper that first broke the story was a small newspaper, I think it was a weekly in Long Island, a little town, it was a small town, that, that they were the ones that broke the story and, and, and they had written about it, nobody really picked it up. And then I think Newsday ultimately saw it and they picked it up. And then the New York Times, and of course, once the Times got it, but the message for that was the decline of the local newspapers, the smaller newspapers, that there's nobody really at that level and there's really just fewer of them. Um, yeah, and that's right. In the early stages, that would have been too small of a story for the New York Times because there's so many congressmen and so many candidates, um, you know, they couldn't have weeded that out. I mean, it would have taken a local newspaper to really pick up on that. But yeah, they don't exist anymore. No, they don't. And, uh, and those that do just don't have the personnel to do that kind of reporting. I, I think that, you know, I, in, in all of this reporting about Santos and the, um, the way the press covered him, I, I do think that the... Um, the, the media has, and I'm not, I'm usually pretty critical of the political press in this, in this uh, country, but I think that's one, 
that's one instance where I'm not as critical because I don't think there's ever been a time in, in my experience in politics, and I've been in and, in and around politics for 40 years now, more than 40 years, that um, that newspapers, uh, reporters in general, didn't rely on the on, on the the candidates them the candidates to vet their own opponents. You know, there's just you know, if I'm if I'm the political reporter for the, for the Advocate of the Shreveport Journal back in my day, I just don't have the resources, the time to go digging through the past oh. of all these candidates. I mean, I might be you know in in a, in a week I might be interacting with a dozen or more candidates, and no one, even the New York Times, has the ability or the resources to go do um, extensive background checks on 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 anybody but maybe the most major candidates, like maybe people running for governor, U.S. Senate, president. Um, you really do. These reporters have always relied on the on the opposition research of their opponents to bring this stuff to them and say, "Hey, look, look here's this file. I'll take a look at it." I, I I don't know if that happened, and if and if it did happen, it, it that's that's maybe where that where where it broke down that the reporters just ignored this information that was presumably plopped on their on their desk. But it, it makes me wonder, Errol, you know, that how much we don't really know about a lot of our public officials about our elected officials and how much we as citizens and how much the press um, take at faith at, at take by faith and at face value what these politicians say they did or, or what jobs they had or where they went to school I I just really suspect and I'd, I'd be interested in your, your thoughts on this I just suspect there's a lot there maybe there aren't many George Santoses out there because this guy was just created his record out of whole cloth but I would suspect there's a whole lot of resume padding out there that that we don't know about because we just we don't have the the time or the inclination to go do a proctological exam of every public official. Well, I think you're right in that um, the source always has to be the opposition candidate. That they need to be someone to do the dirty work and to go to the press and to convince. Now, a lot of times the press might not even be interested. Uh, it seems to me that the people in the press at the are just like a lot younger and a lot less experience and no real sense of history uh, anymore. And so I don't even think they know what to do with it unless they got it. I mean, if they have, it's always good for every publication to have some sort of wise and senior editor there, I mean, who's seen it all before. But lacking that, I think a lot of stuff just just gets by. Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I, I um, when I was working for uh, Kathleen Blanco in the 2003 race toward the end, maybe within maybe 10 days, two weeks from the election, I got a file just came to me on anonymously just through the mail. I don't know who sent it to me that had uh, copies of two articles that Bobby Jindal had written for this Catholic publication. It's the, they were the articles, one of which where he described the um, exorcism that he had participated in when he was an undergraduate at Brown University. And um, I was the communications director for the Blanco campaign. And I started immediately trying to get somebody to write about this this story and i couldn't get the advocate or the picayune or any of the tv stations to touch it it was and they all told me it was just too close to the election it was they, they didn't want to throw a, a you know a, a grenade into the mix um and not give Jindal and his people time enough to respond I, 10 days two weeks would have been plenty of time but they wouldn't touch it and i never was able to get i worked really hard at getting that story uh, into the press and i never could get anyone to write about it uh, it didn't emerge again until he ran for re-election, and by then it was really kind of irrelevant. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, because then they'd be, then they'd be accused about being biased in front of the election, and they mm -hmm. yep. start saying, "Well, it's a witch hunt," and all that, you know, all of that sort of thing. So, um, your career—you've uh, written several books, uh, all of them that sound really fascinating. Uh, I'd like to absorb all of them at, uh, at some point. But do you have another project coming up? Yeah, uh, I have a book that'll be out in uh, June of this year uh, called Kingfish U, Huey Long and LSU. It's this, uh, uh, the title kind of speaks for itself, but it's the story of how Huey Long built the modern LSU. That's good. You know, I wanted to mention when you were talking about Parker started the university system and the governments that built it, a really important thing in New Orleans, I mean, yeah, really important, was when Earl Long was really responsible for opening the University of New Orleans, LSU. And, um, until 1958, New Orleans didn't have a state university. So if you were a college level student and you couldn't afford to go out of town or if you didn't have a scholarship, a lot of times you just couldn't get a, a college education. And the impact that UNO has had on New Orleans is just enormous. The amount of people educate. And what they say about UNO is that I, I think it's true that they say UNO gave New Orleans a middle class. Because part of that, there was a pronounced upper class, there was a huge lower class, but there wasn't really kind of like that educated middle class. And here you have, you have this roguish, hard drinking governor in Earl Long, okay, of all people, who's the last person you think of as being a champion of education. But he did something really, really major for New Orleans and for the future. Yeah, he really did. And it, and it goes again, it, yeah, sort of, it's very interesting to look at how we misallocated our resources in those years, that how um, you know, there were four-year universities in, in, in Ruston, um, and there was a two-year university in, uh, in, uh, in, in, Monroe, in Monroe and Washtenaw Parish. Um, there was SLU up in Hammond. There was, there was LSU. There was SLI in, in, in Lafayette. There were, and, and, and Natchitoches had Northwestern. So, you know, if you were in the north part of the state, you had, you had a university within a couple of hours of you everywhere you were, and yet this, this enormous, very important city had, as you point out, really nothing. And it's just really kind of remarkable how much, how long that lasted, but it's just, a, I think it's, it, 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 it sort of proves what I, what we were talking about very early in this, in, in our conversation, just how much animosity and resentment there is outside of New Orleans toward New Orleans, that it took that long for the state to get around to giving this, this huge important city in the state, a public university. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, UNO made possible the World War II Museum, uh, yep. you know, which is just a, a national attraction and a, and, a great, and, a, and a great place for scholarship on, on, on the war. Uh, so it's a, it's a fascinating story. Okay, so your book is about Huey Wong and LSU. Right. Is that correct? Did he really rent a train to send all the students to Nashville for a Vanderbilt game? Yep. Yeah. He, oh, yeah. Yeah. He he definitely uh, sent everyone who wanted to go. Um, he sent all the originally the the idea was to send all the cadets in the band to um, to the game, and he, he you know he goes to the university to the campus, gets everybody together at the Greek theater, and announces that he's taking the band and the cadets in mass on a bunch of trains uh, up to uh, Nashville for the Vanderbilt game, and uh, he finds out. Uh, later that a lot of students who are non-cadets um, want to go and but they can't afford to go 
and so he goes back to the university a day or so later and says, you know, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna, you know, I've got a, I'm gonna, I've got some money in my pocket, and I'm gonna start lending you money. And uh, students just descended on him, and he ran out of money quickly. He turned around and pulled some money from the the wallet of James Monroe Smith, who was the LSU really? president at the time. When that money was exhausted, he told um, students and anybody who wanted a loan, he was, he was gonna lend everybody uh, $7, uh, $6 <laughs> for train fare and $1 for meals. <laughs> and um, so um, hundreds of, of students uh, went down to his hotel, the Heidelberg uh, Hotel that night and stood in line down the hall and he handed out, um, uh, I think I, if I, my memory serves me, it was about $3,500 in loans to students and they ended up taking, uh, I think it was five trains uh, of fans and, and students up to, uh, to the Vanderbilt game uh, out of Baton Rouge, not counting other fans who came from other parts of the yeah, state. Yeah. It was quite, it was, it was, it was an amazing, it's an amazing story because um, it, it Long was, um, when Long attended a game, it became sort of a national sensation. Uh, there, there were, there were, there were teams that were trying to get LSU to come play them <laughs> because they wanted to play the team, but because they wanted Yui Long to come along because they knew there would be quite a spectacle and there would be a parade and it would be, you know, just a, a real uh, event when Yui Long uh, showed up. And they wanted Long as much as they wanted the LSU Tigers. And the good thing about sending the students to Nashville is that they're playing Vanderbilt, which is usually a, a pushover, so they could uh, come back as winners. And they did. They won the game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and, um, uh, he he had tried to do the same. He was going to he was going to take the, a similar trip to uh, um, uh, Knoxville later that year. He canceled the trip out of out of out of anger when a, a columnist, a national columnist, who's uh, attacked him and the Knoxville paper ran the story. So he canceled that trip. But he did later later that that uh, that, that season. He also took another big trip that probably would have been legendary in its own way. Uh, up to Jack, up to Jackson for the Ole Miss game, um, and it was it was quite a spectacle too, but nothing to match the uh, the Odyssey up to uh, to Nashville for the Vanderbilt game. Well, you never hear about the Jacksonville and the Ole Miss game. No, and 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 the reason the Jacksonville the Jackson game was the Ole Miss game was so big is that LSU had had four big players from Mississippi on the squad that year, including Abe Michael, who was you know the real sensation for a couple of seasons. And everybody wanted to see Abe Michael uh, play uh, Ole Miss uh, in 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 Jackson. Okay. Do, do you know uh, Abe, Abe Michael was for, he, he was in journalism, wasn't he? I, I guess he, he, he was pre med. He was pre med. In fact, he became. Um, That's right. He was the first. He was the first LSU football player drafted by the NFL. He declined the draft, but the Detroit Lions drafted him. He went to med school and he was a, a, a an OBGYN and, and was on the LSU um, medical school faculty for many years. Oh, that's great. Okay. Well, look, I mean, I, I, I got to practice some self-discipline here because I can go on and on talking about this, but I think it's time we should, we should want to, let's do it again though soon. Okay. I enjoyed uh, it, Errol. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah especially with this being election year. And then also when your book comes out, I want to I talk about that. Yeah. I'd love to do that. I'll, I'll be sure and send you a copy. Okay. Okay. So that's been, um, Rob, what's out in the bookstores right now? If somebody says, man, I got to read with Scott, Scott, um, is there anything out there right now? 
uh, one of my memoir, uh, uh, Back, Back Rooms and Bayous, is still is still out there in bookstores. Okay, Back Rooms and Bayous is probably on the on on the uh, internet sets sites also. So you can yeah, get it is. Yes, it okay, is. Rob, okay, Bob, Bob, thanks a lot. Thank you, Errol. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.